Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're eating the wrong diet, things probably occur that shouldn't occur. And I think most disease that we see today you know, has at least in some part a dietary component. Hey everyone, welcome to Health Theory. Today's guest is Dr. Sean Baker. He's an orthopedic surgeon, record-setting powerlifter, one-time semi-professional rugby player, all-American track and field masters athlete, former nuclear weapons launch officer, and most recently, the guy known for popularizing the carnivore diet. And Sean, that's where I want to start. So the carnivore sure. diet obviously has gotten uh, a little bit controversial. People are kind of weird about it. I would do, I'll say I do what I'll call a lazy man's carnivore diet. So I eat probably 90% of my calories come from meat, primarily red meat, some pork. Um, what is it that makes a carnivore diet so controversial? And why do you still think it's worth trying? Well, I mean, first of all, Tom, thanks for having me on. I mean, the carnivore diet, yes, certainly is controversial because it goes against what we've been told from a nutrition uh, science standpoint for the last, you know, 100 years or so. You know, if, if we tell people that, you know, meat is really bad for us, which we've heard, particularly red meat, we've heard that for decades now. We've got people that are really only eating red meat. And what's, what would you expect to happen to their health would be they would get very sick acutely or even over a period of time. But in fact, what we're seeing is quite the opposite. And I think that is uh, something that rubs a lot of people the wrong way because they have a lot of personal investment in a different narrative. And I think that is why it's partially con controversial. I think there's a sort of a comfort in saying that, you know, everything in moderation and balance, even though we can't really accurately define, even define what those mean, <laughs> quite honestly, but that's just sort of a, a platitude people put out. Well, I believe in a balanced diet. Well, I, when I ask people, well, what does that mean to you? And what does it mean to someone from another culture? Mm. You know, they have very different definitions. And so we have to look at, I think, the full spectrum of human existence to say what is perhaps the ideal diet. And as humans, we're very lucky that we have a diverse capacity to eat a lot of different things. Mm. Doesn't mean, uh, you know, I would say that if you were to take people from 100,000 years ago and offer them to eat Doritos and Twinkies, they would definitely eat them. <laughs> Does not mean we're designed for that. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. Are there things, cues that we can look at a human to see if we're a true omnivore and what that means? And Yeah, so I mean, no doubt humans are omnivorous. I mean, we, we clearly are. I mean, we can look at every human that's been on the planet. We can say that they've been eating a little bit of everything. The question is how much of what is represented. Mm. And so um, I think when we look at uh, how to determine what, what something's suited for, really as a human being, what is the overall impact to your health, to your performance, to, to, to how you 
actually, you know, feel, you know, subjectively and objectively, you feed somebody a certain diet and see what happens to them. And, you know, I would say that uh, if you're eating the wrong diet, things probably occur that shouldn't occur. And I think most disease that we see today, you know, has at least in some part a dietary component. You know, if, if we sit there and eat, you know, this modern industrial diet of, you know, novel foods that really aren't designed for us, we see what happens. We see depression, we see autoimmune disease, we see gastrointestinal problems, we see chronic obesity, we see all these things. And a lot of these things we attribute to aging, which probably um, aren't really aging, it's just disease. And I mean, I, I like to use, so the world record for a 15, for a 100 meter sprint at 85 is about 15 seconds. At 85 years old. 85 years old, which is a pretty decent time. Yeah, you know? no kidding. So I like to say, if you can run 100 meters in 15 seconds, you're probably on the on the right side of being dead. You know, I mean, this is just a simple heuristic, but it makes sense. You know, you think about a wild animal, the weak, the slow get eaten, right? And mm -hmm. the same thing happens to humans. As we break down, as we deteriorate, we, we don't get eaten by lions, we get eaten by disease. Mm -hmm. And so if you can maintain, you know, whatever you were at, say 25, whenever you're at your physical peak, you know, and you can stay as close to that as possible for as long as possible. You've not only, in my view, prolonged, well, prolonged your life, but most importantly, prolonged the quality of your life, you know, prolonged your function. And there's clear evidence that, um, you know, athletic ability, lean muscle mass, uh, it protects you from disease. It protects you from, you know, dying. It allows you to function better. And so it's, I think it can be as simple as that. How old are you? 53. Okay, so talking about holding peak performance as you age, I know last year you set the a rowing record, and you're going back to defend that again. So that's certainly very impressive. Um, how do you maintain that peak level of performance? Well, I mean, I mean, just to just to be accurate, so I won a world championships last year. I set three world records when I turned 50. When I when I was at the world championship in my and I was in the 50 plus class, I was in my age class, but. Um, you know, I've been, you know, I've been training my whole life. I mean, it's not like I, one day I woke up and said, ha, ah, I'm going to be a, a good athlete. I mean, I've been consistently doing the basics for 40 plus years. And, you know, it's something that, you know, is important to me. I'm a competitive guy. It drives me as part of my identity. It's kind of, it's just kind of built in at this point. But I mean, I eat what I think is a very good diet, you know, and I'm not promoting that everybody needs to do a carnivorous diet. I think there's do you back off that because there's so much backlash around it, or do you back off of that because truly, truly it won't work for some people? No, I back off because I think most people don't need to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's people that are doing, you know, you know largely well above average and, and very good from a health perspective. And they're, if they're doing great, I don't see what you need to change do you, it for. Is the metric that you use, because I know, uh, at least in the interviews that I heard with you in particular, you don't worry about your blood levels. So is it that you just go, hey, how do you feel, how do you perform, and that's the metric you should care about? So uh, let me clarify. So I, it's not that I don't agree with blood tests or, or that I haven't checked them, because I've, I've done, done, a, done a round of blood tests just because people were asking me. You know, I was like, okay, I'll just do it. It's no big deal. But... I think you have to be very careful in your interpretation of blood tests because you have to put it in clinical context. You know, as a physician, I, I viewed you know thousands upon thousands of blood tests, and, and very often you'll get one that's not quite perfectly within the standard reference range, and you'll say, "Is that is that relevant to what's going on with that particular patient?" So we have a lot of people that are kind of armchair quarterbacks trying to do medicine with lab work, and they just look at these labs and say, "Aha, that one's out of range. You must be sick." And that's not necessarily true. I mean, we have to understand that many of these labs have incredible variability. You know, cholesterol is one of these things. A guy named Dave Feldman is showing that 
you can change his LDL cholesterol 100 points in three or four days. And so we're sitting there, you, you know, you go in once a year for your annual test and your cholesterol is borderline high and your doctor says, hey, we're going to put you on this drug for the rest of your life. When you could have come in three days later and it would have been normal. Mm. Your blood level of vitamin D can change 30% in a day, mm. you know, within a single, within, within the course of a day. So depending on what time of day you get it drawn, you know, things like, uh, uh, you know, cholesterol and all these other ones, they change so much. And so what you really want to know is what is going on chronically. And so I like things like coronary artery calcium scan. That's a, that's a cardiac test you can take by looking at the calcium in your heart. It gives you an idea. How do you run that test? So it's a, it's a CT scan. So, and I had that done about two years into the diet and coronary artery calcium scan, perfect zero, no calcification very good metric for assessing disease. Now there are people who say, well, it might miss soft plaques and so on and so forth. But still, the people that have no calcium have the least likelihood of having plaque or anything from cardiovascular disease. An easy method is just waist to height measurement. You know, we, we know that if your belly is too big, you know, relative to your height, you're at risk for metabolic, you, you basically have metabolic disease. Mm -hmm. And so these things that are more probably chronic representation, because there's a lot of people out there walking around that have really nice lab values, but they're not healthy. And so the problem is when we chase lab values rather than health, we get a very different, uh, different set of goals. And so when you have somebody with, somebody could have a perfectly stable glucose for 10 years and they have hyperinsulinemia. So in the background, they have disease, they have the pathophysiology going on, but we just haven't detected it yet. Mm. So I think that's a, a bit of a travesty, quite honestly. So breaking out of that though, what should people be paying attention to? So things I've heard you say before, so okay, we've got weight to waist to height ratio. You've got, if you're a guy, are you waking up with erections? You've got the calcification of the heart. Like what are other things that we should really well, be Well, I think, I think insulin sensitivity is probably a useful metric. I mean, if you look at the, the relationship of pretty much every chronic disease and hyperinsulinemia, we see a, you know, we see a pretty uh, consistent relationship. Now, again, I sort of rally against associations because there's some problems with that. But in general, you know, I think those things are, are important. Like I said, you know, you mentioned uh, sexual function. That's very important. I mean, it's, it's, some people laugh about it, but it's a very why, important why, part of health. Why is it important? I've heard it said that basically erectile dysfunction is a precursor to heart disease. Like if you're having vascular problems there, chances are that you have a bigger problem going on at the level of the heart. As yeah, well. absolutely. Some people call it a canary in the coal mine. And, you know, it, you know obviously our, our male member is, is, a, is, a, is a blood dependent organ, right? We all know that. Um, and so when you, do have, when you do have impeded blood flow, you know, in, in, in any part of your body, it's probably help occurring systemically mm. unless there was some trauma or something like that. So we see that. So it is, it is a concern for cardiovascular disease. So the fact that at 53 years of age, I wake up every day with a, an erection, mm. you know, indicates which, which, you know, indicates what's going on with my heart. Because, you know, as I, you know, I said, I had a coronary artery calcium scan of zero. You know, what I'm doing athletically would also indicate good cardiovascular function. I don't mm. know if you've ever been on one of these if you've been at CrossFit or something like that with the concept twos, they're, they're very challenging from a cardiovascular standpoint. So that's interesting. So talk to me about um, exercise, heart health. Obviously, you're very known for talking about diet, but also, I mean, just standing next to you, you are a wall of muscle. So you clearly take care of yourself. Physically, you push yourself. Um, one, I think people, like you said, that people look at aging as sort of this inevitable thing, but in reality, you've retained a lot of muscle mass. Um, so one, can we add muscle as we age? Two, why does that matter? 
And then three, how do we do it? Yeah, so, you know, as far as can you gain muscle, yes, you can definitely gain muscle pretty much in any age. There are studies in, in people in, the 80, in their 80s who have shown they can put on muscle mass. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, this, the formula for that is pretty simple. I mean, it's adequate protein, adequate leucine, resistance training, you know, either, either heavyweight or lightweight, depending on, you, you've got to stimulate the muscles maximally. And then for many people, for most people, it's at some sort of caloric surplus, and you can get that through carbohydrates, you can get that through fat. But beyond that, you know, uh, what do you have to do? I mean, at this point, at 53, I like to make sure that, uh, you know, I, I spend some time dedicated to actually getting stronger, and it's basic compound movements. Uh, some time spent, you know, trying to build muscle to maintain that. It's not that you have to have huge, giant bodybuilder muscles, but having lean muscle mass, mm. being in the top, you know, there's a nice study at the Honolulu Longevity Study looked at, uh, strength in, in mid, midlife. People that were in the highest quartile for strength had a 250% chance increase of making it to 100. Whoa. So it's so important to do that. It's almost as important as genetics. What, uh, is it muscle mass, muscle density, the ability to contract the muscle? Because I've heard you say that it's not necessarily size, it's strength. Yeah. Is it that they didn't, in the study, they didn't make a differentiation between strength and size? Because if I really think at a, just a biological level what's going on, it would seem like if you get really sick that there are amino acids and things you're going to go down and strip from your own muscle to recover from that. And if you have no muscle to strip, then you're just done. Um, but that would lead me to believe that size would be pretty important. Yeah, so there's a, there's a clear correlation between cross-sectional muscle area and strength. Oh, that's being challenged. We're seeing some, some research showing that you can be very strong with, with relatively smaller muscles. So I think ultimately when we look at the longevity, it's really strength and really strength to size ratio that's important. So you want to be lean and strong. And I think with strength comes function. So function for one is important. You know, when we lose, when we lose some of our independence for walking, again, again when we get to the end of life, you know, mm. We see people that lose some independence with walking, and strength has, plays a big role in that. There is, you know, it's not that you can, you, there's not, it's not that there's no relationship between strength and size. So there is some, but the research has shown that strength, and, and it, I think quite honestly because most of it is looked at older people, older people are typically not bodybuilders. And so we're not right. looking at Mr. Olympia versus the, the, <laughs> the puny guy. We're looking at kind of normal people, a normal distribution. We can say mm -hmm. these kind of, you know, normal people, the ones that are on the stronger end of the spectrum, do better than the people that aren't. And so when we see you don't have much physiologic reserve, particularly muscle mass, when we do get struck with disease, cancer, you know, infectious disease, something like that, not having that, that, that sort of buffer that the mm -hmm. muscle provides tends to produce a worse outcome. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I want to go back and walk through the lineage of how humans end up here. So the evolution question. So um, one day I was thinking about, okay, where do we fall on the spectrum of what we should be eating and all of that? And I was like, all right, if we share a common ancestor with monkeys and chimpanzees, gorillas, whatever, um, obviously gorillas chew a ton, like they're all about leaves. I know that chimpanzees actually get some percentage of their calories from killing other animals, not the least of which being other chimpanzees. Um, so 
how much do you think is is there truth to we came down out of the trees as food became more scarce as we started turning into hunters we find cooking all of that stuff that allows us to grow the bigger brain like what what was that sort of rough step-by-step process that you think led us to being the omnivores that we are? Yeah, so if we go back even further, you know, there's research now that shows that the very first animals, the very first multicellular animals started out as carnivorous animals. And you think about it, when you're trying to build structure, it's very easy to take like and build like. And mm. so when we go to uh, different sort of building materials, it becomes less efficient. You have to have That's specialized adaptations. And so the ver- going back about 800 million years, the very first animals, appear to be carnivore, and most of the animals that have ever been on the planet have been carnivorous. So an herbivore is a really specialized adaptation. Grasslands evolved about a million, about 100 million years ago, so we started seeing the first larger herbivores come in then. But if we go back to primate evolution, about 25 million years, you know, we've had, you know, monkeys and eventually, you know, the the ones that are still remaining, the the bonobos, the chimpanzees, you know, the gorillas, they've had 25 million years of evolution to, to try and develop increased brain size and they've been doing it on a fruit-based diet, it has not worked. It is not, you know, they've got 25 million years of trying it and it doesn't work. And so something had to change to allow the differentiation into what we are now. And so if we look back in the global climate record, starting between five and three million years ago, we saw a dramatic shift in what happened with global temperatures. And so we went from a lush tropical environment to a very much a uh, colder savanna, you know, uh, type type situation grasslands. And so, if we look at, you know, what people, humans and prehumans were experiencing, it was more kind of Canada and not Costa Rica. Mm. So we've got this situation where the food supply is very different. And some, uh, some of the early, uh, you know, hominids tried to make it on a vegetarian diet. There were things like uh, Australopithecus uh, robustus and Boisei and they, they just went extinct. And so, because they, they, didn't, they, they couldn't survive in the environment. And so we've had, you know, in human evolution, there's all kinds of humans that evolved. And what occurred was, you know, as we grew this bigger brain, it required a, a more and more uh, efficient, effective, caloric dense fuel source. And that was animal fat. And we know that going back to Homo erectus, just with simple spear technology, they had no trouble killing elephants. You know, that, and that's what they usually use was their, you know, their, their uh, food of choice. And you think about it, if you and I were to be magically transported back 50,000 years and our technology was spears, and we could say, well, you can gather, you know, plants for three days to get to get 1,000, 2,000 calories, or you can go out and kill one of these big slow things that doesn't run away that just looks at you. Because, you know, remember, these animals sort of evolve with uh, really no predators. I mean, they, they look, I mean, lions might eat the small elephants, but beyond that, once they're full size, they're like, you know, what are you going to do to meet human and human? So we see that when humans in Africa, they kind of co-evolved, and so they had this abundance of food, abundance of fuel. It helped them to grow that bigger brain. I think that's what occurs. And if we, you know, with comparative anatomy, if you look at another primate and we look at their digestive tract, you know, humans have, on an anatomic basis, you know, looking at, at you know, what, what, what the hardware is, not the software, but the hardware, 17% of our digestive tract is able to ferment. When we compare that to a chimp or an ape, uh, or gorilla, they've got something like 50 to 60% of their gut can mm. ferment. So we lost much of that fermentative capacity, which means we cannot get a lot of nutrition from uh, fiber. You know, these are folivores that eat leaves. We can't get much nutrition from that. It's one of the reasons why a plant-based diet helps people lose weight because they're just not mm. absorbing much nutrition. So they lose weight. Maybe, they're, maybe it's not the best way to lose weight. So mm. that's, that's, we just don't have that capacity anymore. 
It's really interesting. Now, given that we have the 17% ability to ferment, when you hear the standard advice about all things in moderation, like there's, I don't know, something intuitive about that that feels right. I've never lived my life like that. But when people say it, I'm always like, oh God, like there is something haunting about that. And if we know that we are omnivores, why is it advantageous to go so full on into carnivore? Is there something that's missed? Is it a complete diet? Could you literally live on red meat forever? Or are there times where you feel that it's important to dip in and have some vegetables because there are micronutrients or whatever missing? Yeah, so you know, if you were to ask me what is probably a realistic you know, ancient diet for humans, it's probably a whole bunch of meat and probably a few plants here and there, probably fruit being most, most common. You know, mm-hmm. if you think about what's available to you, you know, fruit is generally well-tolerated. Uh, nuts and seeds, you know, without processing can be very tight. You know, a handful of cashews raw can kill you. Five kidney beans can kill you if you eat them unprocessed. So, you know, that was probably the basic diet. Now we have so many people today where their digestive system has been probably destroyed mm-hmm. by you know, I think seed oils and some of these other products that we were exposed to, I think that compromises people so they don't, you know, tolerate other Why do you think foods. seed oil is the big um, problem? Well, so there is some research. There's a group out of Hungary called the Paleo Medicine Senior Group, and they've looked at gut permeability. And there's, a, there's something, there's a concept called leaky gut. Mm. So normally our digestive tract, you know, we eat the food, we, take, we absorb things we want to take in, and we don't allow anything else extra to come in there. There's some degree of permeability that's normal, but we get this exaggerated permeability that occurs when we're exposed to certain foods. Seed oils is flagged as one of them based on their research. When they look at it, they say every time someone eats seed oils, gut permeability increases significantly. And that allows you know, bacterial endotoxins, LP, lipopolysaccharides, other things to be absorbed through the, through the, through the, uh, you know, the gut barrier. And it tends to cause problems in the body, whether it's autoimmune disease or many other problems. And so when we go back to the, the baseline, you know, and I think all humans have the capacity, at least a healthy human. Now there's people where as they age, we lose some of our digestive capacity. One of the common things we see with people as they get older, their gastric pH, you know, goes up. They don't have the capacity to produce a really acidic stomach environment. Humans have the, among the most acidic stomach environments on the planet compared to almost any other animal. We are on par with things like hyenas and vultures, which were scavenger animals. And the, the thought is, the reason we developed that is because initially when we were an Australopithecine or something like that, we scavenged meat and that meat was probably sitting out for a while. It was probably heavily contaminated. And so the animals that had a more robust pH that could kill that, mm. you know, lived out. This is the natural selection sort of theory on that. But as far as uh, why somebody would do that, is it, is it something you can do for a long time? I mean, I've done it for three years. I mean, I've basically had essentially only red meat with the exception of uh, some fish here and there, some eggs here and there, some spices occasionally. I got to eat in a restaurant. And you know, three years in, I'm winning world championships. So I mean, if, if, there's, a, if there's a deficiency, maybe it's a 10-year deficiency. I'm kind of skeptical about that. You know, there's people that have been doing this stuff for 10 years, 20 years that are still thriving. And, and it's kind of interesting to see. And it just makes sense from a, an evolutionary plausibility standpoint, you know, what food, if there was some essential plant nutrient, some essential plant food that you had to have to survive, how would you get from Africa to Europe to Asia, across the Bering Strait, into Alaska, down, down to North America? What plant would be there that you had to have? And so I cannot think of, 
know, if you can tell me a blueberry is essential for human nutrition, I'm going to say, where do you get blueberries in a Bering Strait 50,000 years ago when it's frozen? So, I mean, it's like you can always get meat, though. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> it's, look, man, so, uh, one, I love what you're doing with the N of One stuff. And just, I feel like there's a whole movement happening right now where people are going, I get it. Like, there's no, I don't have proof, but I'm telling you I'm living it, and it's kind of rad. So, I... I partly because of, ta well, actually, let me back up. So uh, used to be 60 pounds heavier, but not in a good way. All um, just fat, a little bit more muscle in fairness. Um, but mostly I had in putting on muscle, I was on a seafood diet. So if I saw food, I ate it. I've been on that one. Yeah. yeah. And it was actually, I was eating so much. I hated eating. It was just, oh, but I didn't want to miss a second to put on muscle. So I ended up putting on a lot of fat. And I decided, okay, I'm going to get lean. And I did. I got very fucking lean. And I did it by basically rabbit starvation. So I was eating very high protein. Probably 80, 85% of my calories came from protein. I tried to keep my carbohydrates to zero. And I tried to keep my fat to zero. So the 15% was like shit sneaking in. Right. Just because I couldn't like yeah, not. Yeah, 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 you can't just eat the chicken breast. But I, I got as close as I could. And I did that for two years. I got shredded would be an exaggeration, but I got very lean, six-pack abs, the whole nine. And it was miserable. I hated my life. I was hungry around the clock. And my wife and business partners pulled me aside and said, you no longer have a personality. And I was like, wow, I really need to like take this seriously. And the big thing was, and I'd struggled with this my whole life, so I didn't, I didn't make the connection, unfortunately. My wrists hurt so badly that even in my 20s, I was icing them every night. And I iced them every night for about 15 years. I iced them so much that I had what looked like burn marks on the back of my wrist. And that was misery. And then I met Peter Atia and Dom D'Agostino. And they said, man, this whole keto thing, you need to be eating fat. And I just could not wrap my head around that. I was like, it's called fat. It's going to make me fat. Like, I'm not going to eat this stuff. They're like, don't be a dumbass. Eat it. And so I went, I went therapeutic um, ketosis. So I was doing a four to one ratio. It was misery. It was gross. I had the keto flu the whole nine. But within three days, my wrist stopped hurting. And I was like, whoa. It, it is the closest food-related thing to having a drug-like effect I've ever experienced in my life. And so I went off keto for a year because I had had such a bad experience with it. But I kept my fat high and my wrists have never hurt since. That was insanely transformative and then through that just because I'm super lazy I didn't want to have to try to do it through vegetables which is a lot more just takes a lot more concentration and I found myself I was probably taking in I don't know 85 like I said 85 90 percent of my calories now come from red meat and like a nice fatty pork rib um and it's been awesome but I've kind of until people started talking about the carnivore diet I was kind of holding my breath like Am I fucking up my microbiome? Am I moving myself backwards in some way that I you know, can't see yet? And so at one point I pushed hard and I went heavily vegetable because for um, ethical reasons, I would love to never need to eat meat. And I started to feel like shit. Now it's entirely possible I just didn't do it well. I'm willing to accept that. But sliding backwards into the most ignorant way of getting in red meat and I feel fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff in there. And so I would say, you know, for one, if we look at 
biochemically, what do humans need? What are our essential requirements? There are only essential amino acids, essential fats, vitamins and minerals. That's it. There's no fiber, there's no phytonutrient. Those are not requirements. Those are conditionally maybe beneficial, but they're not required. So we look at absolute requirements. So if you're, you know, rabbit starvation, too much protein, and I would say that if we look evolutionary, I think probably most humans were getting about 30 to 40 percent of their calories from protein. The rest, majority of the rest would be from fat and then maybe a few, you know, plant foods here and there. So I think you know, when you go too much on the protein for too long, that's, that's, that's a problem. And we see that with people. And I did something similar. When I, when I went from 300 pounds to 230 pounds in a course of three months, I did the same thing. I, 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 you know, I exercised three times a day. I cut my caloric intake in half, you know, just plowed through it like a you know, competitor. I'm just going to do it. And, and I was at work in the, at the hospital, and the nurse says, hey, we like fat Dr. Baker better because you're not so pissed <laughs> off and grumpy all the time. And it's the same thing. You can't sustain it. You're miserable. You're hungry. This is the thing. For a diet to succeed, you have to, well, the, the two things that make diets not succeed are, one, you're hungry all the time because you can't maintain that. And two, the food sucks, right? So if you go like, I like eating Oreos and ice cream and Twinkies and cake and cookies, that's good. Now, you're going to say, I can't eat that, but what am I going to replace it with? Well, you're going to replace it with quinoa and kale, and that kind of sucks. But you can say, hey, maybe if you replace it with steak and eggs, which are for most people, guys particularly, hey, that's pretty good stuff. I can do that. It's, it's satiety producing, and it's also very nutritious. And again, I don't necessarily think everybody needs to be 100%, but when you get your nutritional needs met through you know, meat, uh, whether it's, and you might add eggs, you might add organ meat, some people are proponents of that, some are fish or something like that, or a little bit of dairy, you are much more likely to be satisfied. You're much more likely to be able to eat infrequently you know, when the food is right, I think the, the, the autophagy, the intermittent fasting happens naturally. And that's what happened. Like when I, I eat twice a day, that's pretty much my routine. Some days it's once, occasionally it's three times, but it's just because I eat enough, I'm satisfied, I eat to my satiety. And you think about what other animal needs an app to eat, a micronutrient table to eat, you know, a, a dietitian behind them telling them how to eat. I mean, they just eat and they don't have chronic disease and they stay healthy. So there should be a food for humans where you can just eat to satiety, mm -hmm. eat when you're hungry and maintain a healthy level of body weight and avoid disease. And I think a meat-based diet seems to, and when I say seems to, because I'm on a very biased, you know, I'm, I'm biased. I, I see the results. I see the positive right. results. I get everyday people sending me the results. So I'm very much, well, this seems to be pretty cool. I'm excited to announce that Harvard, David Ludwig, is going to be doing a carnivore study. It'll, it'll, this, will be, this, this episode will come out after it's been announced. Mm -hmm. so, um, so we're going to be starting to do that and get more actual, you know, real modern data on this stuff. Do that, you know what the study is going to be? Or, like, the thing I'm really curious about is will it include organ meat or are we just talking like some burgers? Well, it'll include whatever people are eating. So we're going we're gonna to try to get as many uh, people as possible. That so this is people already doing it. This is people that have already been doing it for six months. We're gonna, it's going to be a survey. It's going to be looking at their blood work. It's going to be assessing their health. You know, uh, you know obviously, there, there's a lot of you know, potential confounders and subjective bias and stuff like that. But it's getting that in the literature and then going from there and say, look, we have a population of three or 4,000 people that have submitted to a, to a, to a study and they are either, maybe they're all sick and dying, or maybe they're really healthy, which I think the latter is going to be the case. But so when we, did, when we get that in the literature, now we have power to say, okay, 
Now let's do some intervention trials. Let's see what it does for psoriasis. Let's see what it does for rheumatoid arthritis. Let's see what it does for depression. Because what oh, I'm seeing anecdotally, yeah, anecdotally, I'm just seeing every day I get people, hey, I had PTSD, it's gone. Or it's gotten it's significantly what? better. No, seriously. I had suicidal depression. I don't think about suicide anymore. Do you so, think this is uh, inflammation? I think, it's, I think it's a combination of things. And so if we look at it from a mental health standpoint, we know that creatine, carnosine, carnitine, taurine, all things are found almost exclusively in meat. Mm. Now, granted, your body can make some of that, but when it's in lower levels, and we know that people on plant-based diets have lower levels, there's a nice study in 2018 looking at carnitine levels in people with major depressive disorder. Their carnitine levels are low when you supplement carnitine. Again, carnitine is a meat-based product. Their depression gets better. So we see that. So it's probably, one, maybe reduction in brain inflammation, but two, also supplying these nutrients that have sort of positive you know, brain chemistry effects. And so the thought that nutrition has no role in mental health disease is, is mind-boggling to me that people think it doesn't. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, how could it not? I mean, your brain is just an organ like any other organ in your body like your liver is. It's, yeah. it's subjected to the same environmental you know, goodness and badness that everything else is. And so why nutrition wouldn't have an impact on brain health also, the connection to the gut, right. so in terms of controlling uh, neurochemistry, huge influence, serotonin, almost exclusively stored in the gut, released from there. Um, that one's crazy. And then the whole notion of leaky brain syndrome. Right. Leaky gut and leaky brain are parallel. If you have a leaky gut, you probably have a leaky blood-brain barrier. Yeah, that does seem very striking that people would push back on that. Um, one thing I want to know, so like I said, I do sort of a lazy man's carnivore diet. You're the first person I've heard talk where it's like, hey, it actually, you're not pushing organ meat really hard. You're even saying, eh, like maybe grass-fed's a bit better, but like grain-fed's a lot better than going out and eating a Twinkie. So um, do I need to eat organ meat? Because I really don't want to. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. So I know there's people that disagree with me. And like I said, I have, my whole uh, sort, of, sort of belief system is let me see what the results people are actually having. The way right. they feel? Or blood levels? Well, like every, all, you of say it, the all of it, results. all of it. You know, because you know, the, 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 the results are, you know, generally, are you reversing disease? Mm -hmm. Are you improving body composition? Are you, you know, can you subjectively and objectively say you're healthier? But what if you're already healthy? Like, I'm a healthy dude. I've right, been living right. a healthy lifestyle since my mid-20s. So I'm not going to be the guy where you see some massive swing. Right, I will sure. say from my rabbit starvation, my doctor loved it because my cholesterol was in the fucking dirt. Sure, sure. But I felt like death. Right. That's, so that was not fun. Yeah, that's a great example of great labs, but feel like garbage, right? right? So that's yeah. what I'm trying to figure out. Like, so a guy like me, what should I be paying attention to? Because, like, you've, I've heard you say many times... We're never going to know if this is going to make you live longer, right? That, right. That, that is an experiment that takes an entire lifetime. Right. So I don't fucking know, but I want like the best guess. So actually, while it's, I guess it makes people like sort of giggle under their breath, but okay, erection. Like am I waking right. up with oh, an absolutely. erection or not? I love absolutely. it. That's a metric. Yep. Yep. Um, how do I feel psychologically? A metric. Waist to height ratio. Metric. Like I want to know like what are the things that as doctors get educated, what should they be looking for to know whether to assign somebody a carnivore diet? And then what should they be looking for to know if the carnivore diet is working? Right. So I think, you know, we have such a sick society. There was a study that came out that said 88% of us are metabolically unhealthy. 88? 88%. So There's only 12% of Americans that fit a criteria of normal metabolic health parameters. So we've got Jesus. such... This is why it's just so important. We have such a 
disaster, and it's only going to get worse. And the problem is with this you know, obesity, diabetic, diabetes epidemic, that will turn into a dementia epidemic, and that's mm -hmm. impossible to take care of. But So when we look at you, know, you, the healthy guys, so I would say now you're at performance. You know, it's like, how fast can I run a mile? How fast can I run 100 meters, right? How much can I lift? What's my body composition like? Am I waking up with a boner every morning? You know, am I, you know, what, where am I, where am I doing? What, do my joints hurt? Does my back hurt? You know, those are the things that really matter to you. You could care less what your LDL cholesterol is. If it's, if it's 75 and you feel like garbage, it's like, I don't really care about that. I want to, I want to feel and perform mm -hmm. and do well, you know, subjectively. So that's part of my life experience, right? Um, you know, the, the, the thought of, uh, you know, what do we need to eat on a carnivorous diet? You know, this is the thing. When I, and I've done surveys, I did a survey a couple of months ago, I got 11,000 responses in 24 hours, and we asked them 25 questions, what are you eating, you know, the, the interesting things to me were, how many of you were taking prescription medications, and how many of you came off your prescription medications, mm -hmm. and you know, we didn't stratify by, by period of time, it could have been three months or less, 70% of those people dropped their meds, Whoa. you know, and so it's like that's significant Whoa. health improvement. Then you say, how many of you guys are eating organ meats on a regular basis, 15%. So 85% of the people are eating them either not at all or very, very rarely. Do you eat organ meat? Uh, I, I don't generally. I mean, I've eaten, you know, when it's offered to me and someone has it, I'll eat it. I generally don't like it. Are I mean, you eating it because you're just like hedging your bets? No, no, I eat it because I don't want to offend the person that cooked it for me. Hmm. I'm not eating it because I'm worried about some deficiency. Right. I mean, again, if you look at the people that have been doing this diet the longest, you know, the, the pioneers, the guys who have been doing it the 20, 21 years, they just eat steaks and ground beef and they're fine. All right, here's a random question yep. for you. So watching a documentary on wolves, the alpha always gets to eat the liver, I think it is. Why would that matter if it doesn't have some extra oomph? So this is, uh, I think, one of the things with, you know, when we look at animals, okay, usually a predator animal is hunting a prey animal that's relatively lean. Protein is not a concern. On, on a meat-based diet, you're gonna get plenty of protein. What you're not gonna get is fat. Where is fat located on a lean animal? It's located in the viscera. So they go after the perinephric fat, the pericardial fat, the omentum. This is where the concentrated fat is. And this is why we see that, you know, we hear historical accounts of, you know, like uh, polar uh, societies where they'll throw away the lean meat to the dogs because mm. I got plenty of protein when I don't have is fat. Remember, fat is, and that's why I remember you with your sore wrists. Yeah, yeah, I'm only yeah. eating protein. I'm like, there's only so much I can eat of that, and then I need some fat. And so I think really it's fat seeking behavior. That's why we're cracking bones to get the marrow. That's why we're eating Jeez. brains because brains are high in fat. Yeah. It's not necessarily that there's some magical nutrient in them. And yes, liver has more vitamin E. Yes, liver has some vitamin C. But I don't think, I mean, again, I don't have scurvy. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, I haven't had vitamin C in any significant quantity outside of what I get in steaks in three years. And scurvy is a water-soluble vitamin. I would just get symptom within a few months, and then I would get sick. And so we're not seeing that. Now, some people, uh, again, some people feel better on that. And I think some people that are particularly vitamin depleted, that's probably a good strategy. And I think some people, I think you just have to experiment. Like if you, right. if you sit there and choke down liver because you don't like it, say, oh, I just, I'm just doing it out of my duty. And you say, I, I notice no improvement, or maybe there's some placebo effect where you notice something for a little bit. If you don't notice it consistently, maybe you don't need it. Yeah, agreed. I can't let you go without talking to you a little bit about the military. I, your experience is all over the fucking map. It's so fascinating. Like, looking at you, I'm expecting a meathead, but you're not a meathead. <laughs> you're a surgeon. You've served in the military, nuclear, 
launch officer? Yeah, yeah. I used to, I used to be in charge of uh, hundreds of IC, uh, nuclear warheads, you know, that back is, in the Air Force. Yeah, I used to be the guy crazy. that, you guys saw the movie War Games back yes. in the day. I was one of the guys who was Did down. Did you want to be that guy? Uh, you know, it was kind of funny. So I was in medical, I went to college, University of Texas, went to medical school, got roped into playing rugby. You know, this guy, this guy named Paul McCartney, who was not the Beatle, but <laughs> he had a gym. So he said, you know, you need to play rugby. And so I started playing rugby. And then I liked rugby. And I ended up being pretty good. I got selected on the Western U.S. team and the All-Texas team. And then I got recruited to play in New Zealand. So I was like, I'm in medical school. And I was like, yeah, fuck it, I'm going to go play, play rugby in New Zealand. So I dropped out of medical school, much to the chagrin of my medical school professors. They're like, you, you know, you're a good guy, why are you doing it? I was like, man, I'm, I want to play rugby. So I went there, and then I went into the military as a nuclear weapons officer when I came because I, so I could continue to play rugby for the mm -hmm. military. So I played up until I was 30, and, then, and during oh. that time, um, my day job was nuclear weapons guy. So this was just simply something to do while I played rugby, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then I and then I got tired of. I remember I was playing this team from Russia. And I was laying on the bottom of a pile. And this guy was kicking me in the head. And I had blood coming out of my ears. Oh, and I'm Jesus. like, I'm 30. I'm done. I want to go back. So I went back to medical school. The military paid for that. And so when I got out, they immediately, you know, I neededly had to repay my time to them as a surgeon. So mm -hmm. they immediately sent me to Afghanistan. And this is like, you know, crazy, crazy time. Every This is 2007. Wow. Yeah, so 2007, middle of Afghan war, and it was just. All day long, every day, trauma, constant trauma, people being blown up, the worst injuries you could possibly see, little kids, you know. We took care of Taliban, we took care of, you know, the, the good guys, the bad guys, the civilians. I mean, it was just nonstop. It was every single day. How do you deal with that? Like, how do you compartmentalize the trauma? Like, even just hearing someone scream, I've got to imagine, like, yeah. being back and hearing some, someone scream would bring that back how do you like frame that how do you get that yeah i mean it's it was such a unique situation i mean combat trauma is just it's just not a normal i mean the closest thing i ever saw as as a, as a physician was a refinery explosion where we got you know people again blown up mm. or a train accident but but i mean generally it's it's so out of the normal realm of my existence i don't associate anything normal day to day with mm. that sort of stuff i mean and when we were there it was like you know all you did was you know sleep wake up eat operate till, till you got tired, you know, try to get some sleep, sometimes operate in the middle of the night and, and occasionally exercise. And that was it for constantly every day. Uh, and you're just exposed to that. And after a while, you kind of become a little bit immune to it because it's like, you know, it's like, oh, another guy's legs blown off. You know, we're used to that. Mm -hmm. I remember when I first got there, it was kind of, um, it was kind of sad because I, I, I flew in through Kyrgyzstan. Uh, we unload our stuff. We're sleeping in this giant hall, like 300 guys on cots. We go in and we hook up with the army who was we were relieving, we were the Air Force, we were leaving the Army guys. And the first time I said, oh, let's, we gotta go work. And, and we get in there, and the first thing I see was this poor, I mean, he's like a 23-year-old Canadian kid, both legs blown off above the knee. You know, special ops guy, you know, full beard, because they can wear full beard and special ops. Mm -hmm. You're just thinking, holy shit, welcome to, welcome to the war. You know, this yeah. is a real life. And, and it just never stopped from day one. It was just constant, constant, constant trauma. And, you know, I don't regret going because I learned a lot, and I was there helping people. And I, I was privileged to be able to help people, but it's it's not a good place. It's not it's not that you know no no one should ever look forward to war. Yeah, what did you learn? You said you learned a lot. Well, I mean, I learned how to improvise. You know, think fast on my feet because when you're, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon in the U.S., you're like, I need this, and I, and you get all the equipment you need. But mm -hmm. there, you're like, I I need a, a screw that's 44 millimeters long, like. 
we got a 65 and a 20, which one do you want? So, I mean, wow. you know, you don't, you don't have the right equipment, the right materials. You're just trying to figure out how to do the best you can with what mm. you have. And so it's, you know, and it's the unpredictability. You know, there's a lot of, you know, when, when, I, when I was operating as a U.S. guy, I was like, my goal was to make surgery as boring as possible. It's like routine, everything the same way, over and over again. That's what you want. Over there, it was like, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't mm. know if you have the equipment. We ran out of saline. We were in, we're, there's no water. We're like, we're doing a surgeon. We don't even have saline to, to rinse wounds or wash our hands. I mean, Jesus. what are we going to do? And you, you just don't have a choice. And so sometimes you learn that uh, you can do a lot more than you think you can. Yeah, that's really uh, just incredible. Like, I can't imagine how that begins to shape the way that you think. Did it change it all the way that you think about people, about humanity, about your job? I think it made me uh, not fear things, you know, because I was like, Anything that someone throws at me, I've seen much worse, particularly mm -hmm. from a medical standpoint. You know, it's, it's kind of like I've seen the worst of the worst that you can possibly imagine. And, you know, like I, I said, as I do what I'm doing now, I get a lot of negativity thrown my way. And I'm like, it's nothing. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, what, what, what am I worried about? You know, and so I just kind of laugh at that stuff. So it made me a harder person, a tougher person, not a, not a mean person. You know, I still mm -hmm. care very much about people. But at the same time, I'm kind of... Uh, you know, imbued with this resilience to, you know, keep foraging ahead despite what seems to be uh, a lot of opposition. Because I think what I'm doing obviously is controversial, you know, with regard to diet. It's, right. There's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of status quo that does not want to be disrupted. You know, there are a lot of people that are happy to provide you with pills for your various ailments and illnesses and, and manage your disease. And that's a billion, trillion dollar industry. And, you know, we're all thankful that there's medications that may help us in a certain situation, but we would much rather not have them in the first place. Mm. Yes, very much so, which leads me to my last question. But before I ask that, where can people find you online? So I am active on social media, Instagram. It's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Baker, B-A-K-E-R, 1967, which is my birth year. Um, I'm on Twitter at SBakerMD. I've got a YouTube channel, uh, just Sean Baker. And so uh, it's important, we're, we're starting a, a company, it'll be out by the time this comes out, called meetrx.com. It's, it's going to be a giant resource for people that are interested in learning more about diet, all the scientific references that support this. Uh, we're going to have some coaching component for people that want to have some support as they do this. And so that'll be uh, something that I'm pretty excited about. And then, of course, book's coming out. It'll be out by the time this episode's out, Carnivore Diet by Sean Baker and, and you know, knock on something that it, that it does well. Nice, man. It's exciting. So to the end that we would much rather just not get sick than have something to treat it, what is one change that people could make that would have the biggest impact on their health? Yeah, I think, I think ownership, taking ownership of your own health is probably the biggest thing people do because too many people outsource their health to other people. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and I'll, I'll speak it as a perspective as a physician. Yeah, I want to do a good, I want to help you. But I don't have as much invested in your health as you do. So you have to take ownership of your own health and you have to be willing to see what actually works for you. And so I think we have to step outside the box and say, what is actually helping me be objective about it? You know, you know, measure what's important to you, not what's important to somebody else. Measure what's important to you because ultimately you've got to live in that space. You've got to live in that body. And if, you know, if your labs look great but you feel like garbage, there's something still wrong. So you have to be willing to uh, be your own you know, guide for some of this stuff. Mm, I love that. 
All right, guys, I couldn't agree with that advice more. So take things into your own hands. You should be doing an experiment on yourself. You should be figuring out what works for you. Uh, it's always interesting when people are so even keel that have clearly a strong belief about how things should be, but can also say that, hey, at the end of the day, it's gonna be up to you. Try it, see if it works for you. If it does, great. If it doesn't, move on and try something else. And speaking of trying something else, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Thank you guys so much for watching and being a part of this community. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. You're gonna get weekly videos on building a growth mindset, cultivating grit, and unlocking your full potential.